are going to spend the next several weeks in a special series. Uh, a couple years ago, I was asked to go to Europe and to give a lecture on uh, the history of the Messianic Jewish community in America. Uh, it's kind of a privilege to go do stuff like that, and so uh, give me an opportunity to pull together some information, which I may have known for a long time, but it never really put it into a lecture. It was a three-hour lecture, uh, actually probably longer than that, but uh, I'm going to try in uh, the next three Shabbats to at least break it into three pieces and to share it in some kind of a cogent manner. All right, and uh, for some of you, this is all new to you. You really don't have a working understanding of what I'm even talking about when I talk about the Messianic Jewish movement. Uh, it's all really new. For some of you, you've studied it, and you have a little bit of an opinion here or there uh, about it. Uh, the best way to sum it up is that God has always had a remnant of people, Jewish people, who had believed in Yeshua. When we look at, at the book of Romans 9, 10, and 11, but especially Romans chapter 11, it makes this very clear that God has continued to work in the lives of Jewish people and bring some to faith. Sometimes that sum is a pretty small sum, okay? But, but, God is faithful. And we, as a synagogue, represent his faithfulness. And so my hope in sharing this is to give you some historical background. This is going to be not a series of sermons, but a historical overview. And for some of you, that's going to be great because you'll love history. As I look at Barry Isaacson with his history degree. All right? but, and Esther too, right? So, but for some of you, I, I don't want your eyes to glaze over. I want you to see this as, the practical, as a practical encouragement for you. So let me begin with an introduction and then I want to encourage you Take out your announcement sheet on the back and look at the outline and use it, okay? Otherwise, you're gonna your eyes are going to gloss over. I don't want that happening, all right? So make use of the announcement sheet on the back. We're going to be looking at the modern Messianic Jewish movement before 1970-ish, before the, uh, the Jesus People Revolution and all that that brought about, all right? Messianic Jewish communities have been around in somewhat their current form for well over 125 years. There have been Messianic Jewish congregations, some of them not unlike our own here, for over 125 years, in America as well as in Europe, by the way. Through the efforts of a very few courageous visionaries, they were established first as places of spiritual refuge for Jewish people who had come to faith in Messiah Yeshua, and then secondly as places to gather Jewish believers for the purpose of maintaining and transmitting Jewish identity, both for them and their children. As a physical community, they could serve as a communal witness for faith in Messiah Yeshua to the greater Jewish community. These early Messianic Jewish communities were considered radical, but in reality, they were nothing new. They had been an accepted norm in at least the first four centuries of the Common Era. We have in both Christian historical literature and in Jewish uh, rabbinic literature references to congregations of Jews who believed in Jesus all the way up into the fourth century. There's an article, or there's some statements in the Talmud in regards to this. So... If you've never known that, you know, time to do a little reading. Uh, but, uh, where did I leave off? <laughs> uh, 
because of the efforts of a predominantly Gentile Christianity, though, to distance itself from the Jewish roots of faith in Messiah Yeshua, starting at about the mid-100s, as well as rising anti-Semitism within the emerging Catholic Church, by the 4th century, Jewish believers were first slowly encouraged and then later forced to assimilate within the normative Christian community. God has always had his remnant of Jewish followers of Messiah Yeshua. He has always sought and saved those from among his chosen people. Yet for most of the last 1900 years, Messianic Jews have ended up assimilating and disappearing within Christianity with almost no trace. Today, God has allowed an opportunity for Messianic Jews to again build communities for spiritual encouragement as well as communal witness to the greater Jewish community. My objective in these lectures is first to provide an overview of the historical development of the Messianic Jewish Congregational Movement, second to explain why it should exist, and then third, share my own thoughts in regards to its future. Okay? And all of that is going to be very truncated in our talks here in the next couple of weeks. Looking on your sheet, first thing I want to talk about is the early development before 1920 in America. The early development of the Messianic Jewish community in America before 1920. And it is an entirely missionary effort. Now, if you want to say a bad word in the Jewish community, say missionary. I remember I used to go on Devon Avenue years ago when I was at Chosen People Ministries and I'd hand out literature and you could hear people say, missionary, you know. You know, the, the real frumies, the real religious people are just yelling down the street at me, warning people. There's this invader coming into our community. One time I was handing out literature and Officer Feinstein didn't like the fact that I was off, uh, handing out literature on Devon Avenue. You, I don't know if you know Officer Feinstein. You do. I was, I was at a Jewish music thing on Devon Avenue. Feinstein came up to me and said, get out of here. I said, it's my right. He said, you're under arrest. I said, you can't do that. He says, I don't care. That was very interesting because soon somebody else came by and said, you really can't do that to him. All right? But, you know, missionary is a bad word in the Jewish world. Okay? Why? Because it really represents outsider. But I want to point out that before 1920... All efforts to reach into the Jewish community with the good news of who Yeshua is, in America, it was basically missionary efforts. Overwhelmingly missionary efforts. With probably like one exception, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, now, of course, for those of you who are not aware, the development of the North American Jewish community happened this way. The first Jews who came were Moranos, Sephardim. Sephardim, Jews from the Spanish expulsion, were the first Jews to come to America. They came to New Amsterdam in like 1650, and uh, the governor of New Amsterdam said, didn't want them to be there, but business is business, and so they let them stay. Okay? Uh, and the, the Jewish community in America was almost entirely Sephardic, almost entirely Sephardic, many of the Moranos, from the mid-1600s through the mid-1800s, and there were not a lot of Jews in America. All right? Uh, German-Jewish immigration took place beginning in the mid to late 1800s. Mid to late 1800s. And that, you know, Levi Strauss. Levi Strauss is a good German Jew and went out to uh, sell Levi's, right? To uh, the people panning for gold. And a bunch of German Jews went to... California, 
uh, and, and basically came into the United States because of opportunity. There were pressures in Middle Europe, and they all ran. And they, they came here. My own father's side came to America in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and they were German Jews from Austria-Hungary, and they went to San Francisco to make money. It wasn't about religion. It was about making money. Okay? And that's a lot. I mean, if you go looking back in, in American Jewish history, you can see how American, German, America was influenced tremendously in a positive way with all these German Jewish people coming in with an emphasis, many of them, on, on just maximizing their abilities to do well in the Golden Land, the land of America, whether you can make money. Eastern European Jews, how many of you, are, you have Eastern European Jewish background? Most Jews in America are Eastern European Jews, and they didn't start coming until the late 1800s. Some nutcase who was Jewish tried to assassinate uh, Tsar Alexander, I think it was the first, in 1880-something, and uh, all these horrible pogroms began, and all these expulsions, and the pale of settlement. And people said, I don't want that anymore, and they eventually left. My mother's side came from Odessa and Semperfol, or whatever it is, someplace, some shtetl called Didel, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, because you couldn't take it anymore. It was horrific. I think it was, I mean, numbers are, are amazing, but literally a couple of million Jews moved from Eastern Europe to America from about late 1890s up until about 1920, and then quotas kicked in because everybody's like, there's too many of these Jews here in America. There was a, uh, an immigration of Jews after the Holocaust. Took several years, but Holocaust survivors were integrated into America. And then the last immigration of Jews into America took place with the Ruskies. And we know what that has cost. All right. Uh, but that's the development of the North American Jewish community. The American Jewish community at its height uh, was probably close to 6 million Jews. And we're still at about 6 million Jews. Uh, there's not been development in terms of numbers, and a lot of that is due to assimilation and intermarriage here in America. Now, in terms of reaching into the Jewish community, the very first verifiable Jewish believer in America was Judah Monas. We know this is historically accurate. In 1720, Judah Monas became a believer. I saw his grave in Boston. He became a believer. Uh, it was very interesting as the, the Congregationalists or those, those Christians up there were, uh, were very influential and very serious. He taught at Harvard. He taught Hebrew. Uh, and uh, Judamonas is the first recorded believer. Be besides Judamonas, we have really nothing else, and there's no actual uh, real effort to reach into the Jewish community in America until you get to about 1850. And in 1850, a group of Christians called Presbyterians started an active effort to reach into the Jewish community. They, the, uh, these were pioneering efforts in England. By the way, when it comes to Jewish evangelism, uh, the, the Jewish outreach, the Catholics always had uh, something they used to call the Office of the Inquisition. <laughs> and that was their effort at outreach in the Jewish community. 
And, of course, uh, Mel Brooks had a great song he wrote called The Inquisition. The Inquisition, it's just kidding here. Okay. The Inquisition, though, officially was the Catholic arm for outreach into the Jewish community for much of the Middle Ages, especially after the expulsion from Spain. Uh, so there really wasn't anything like we understand in terms of outreach into the Jewish community with the good news of the gospel until the British started doing it in the late 1700s. And then there was a small group of people in Middle Europe and the name escapes my mind. I, I didn't prepare for this because it's European Jewish history. But um, there was a, an evangelistic group, the Moravians, uh, in Middle Europe in the mid-1700s who began an effort. But, but besides the Moravians and then some British, uh, the 1850s was still very much a pioneering effort reaching into the Jewish community with the good news of who Yeshua is. And uh, the, the, again, the Presbyterians had the first effort, and what they did was they would see Jewish people kind of believe in Yeshua, and they put them into churches. Uh, there, were also, there was also another effort uh, by a guy uh, named William Blackstone. William Blackstone, uh, in 1880 in Chicago, was a Zionist. He began an effort along with a few people, other people, to encourage the Jewish community to be able to resettle in Israel. And remember, this was, at, this was about 1880. There was a lot of anti-Semitism in Europe. There was, of course, the situation with the Tsar in 1881. And beginning at about 1880 and forward, he would travel uh, and, uh, to Washington. He was very influential. He would go to Europe and meet with the heads of states. I believe he also met with the Ottoman Sultan all for the effort of allowing Jews to be able to immigrate to Israel. And uh, his mission was called the, um, the Chicago Hebrew Mission. And uh, he, today it's Life of Messiah <laughs> Ministries. Uh, that's what's, what's left of it. Um, the one thing that's interesting about Blackstone, although he loved Jewish people, he didn't believe Jews should maintain their identity at all. The mission he founded, Chicago Hebrew Mission, uh, did not allow Jewish believers to serve as missionaries, generally speaking, and they discouraged any and all Jewish identity. And it was because of his fear, an unnecessary fear, but his fear that Jews who believed in Jesus, who began to in any way do anything Jewish, would get sucked back into the Jewish community and would renounce Yeshua. The only, uh, in, in New York, by about 18... 90, there, uh, 1895, uh, there were enough, was enough of a Jewish community in uh, New York that uh, there were actually a small collection of Jews who believed in Jesus, some of them coming to faith from all kinds of strange directions. Presbyterians had done a work, but then also some churches were reaching out. I mean, the Jewish community came in to the Lower East Side, and, uh, and the conditions are miserable. Uh, you already had the establishment, I believe, right, of the Salvation Army, and so they're, they're a Christian group. And so you have these Christian groups interacting with poor people, some people coming to faith, some of them Jews. And uh, there was a rabbi by the name of Leopold Cohen from Middle Europe. Middle Europe. And so he came uh, to America uh, from what is today the Austro-Hungarian Empire in about 1890. And uh, Leopold Cohen becomes a believer in Yeshua. And Leopold Cohen stays in the Jewish community. He came to faith uh, and had connections with some Christians, and these Christians gave him money 
in order to, to, to reach into the Jewish community, but Leopold Cohen, as a Jew, never left the Jewish community. He continued to serve as a rabbi in New York, in a place called Williamsburg, which technically is in Brooklyn, and the ministry at that time was called the Williamsburg Mission. And uh, they did tremendous work. I mean, if you're interested in reading about it, I did bring some suggested reading. Uh, this is a book I got when I was on staff with Chosen People. It, it gives the whole history. And if it, you can't just borrow it because I'll cut your hands off. No, just kidding. But, but this, this book is tremendous because the guy who wrote it, uh, Harold Sevener, uh, was a real historian, and Harold also wrote all the good, the bad, and the ugly, so it's very informative. The one thing I noticed about Leopold Cohen and his work is that, um, is that it was indigenous while he was there. It was absolutely, utterly indigenous. He's working with Jews. The, uh, he, he, they, I mean, I, I don't want to get into it all now, but it was probably the first example in America of a Messianic Jewish outreach, not a mission. Messianic Jewish outreach. Jews reaching out to Jews, begun in 1896, right? 1894, 1894. Um, the other uh, thing I want to mention, though, is the results. And uh, there's a fellow, Louis Mayer. Louis Mayer's a Jewish guy, not a believer in Yeshua. And, uh, and he was trusted by everybody in terms of being a statistician. So he kept track of numbers from the non-Messianic Jewish perspective, but everybody, again, trusted his numbers. And this is a quote that I have from this fellow, Yaakov Ariel, who wrote a tremendous book, Missions to the, uh, Missions to the Jews in America, 1880 to 2000. And uh, it's part of his Ph.D. dissertation at um, North Carolina, University of North Carolina. And uh, this is what uh, Louis Mayer says. In the early 1900s, Louis Mayer, whom remarkably both Christians and Jews esteemed as a reliable recorder of missionary activity, placed the number of Jews who had converted in America and who joined Protestant evangelical churches at 4,033. 4,033. By the early 1900s, there are probably 3 million Jews living in America. Maybe 2.5 million Jews living in America. But only 4,033 were Jewish, Jewish people living, who became believers in churches. Now, I'm sure there's many, many more, not on the records. Again, Leopold Cohen didn't put his, those people in churches. They were in, in uh, the works he was involved with. Someone had mentioned, uh, there's a fellow that, oh, I'll mention it later. But anyway, um, so before 1920, all efforts to reach the Jewish people, for the most part, are church-based missionary efforts. What we see emerging with, with Leopold Cohen, which is very small and doesn't get large until after 1920, is, uh, is the only indigenous work. All right? And the numbers are pretty small. Almost all JBs came to faith through the work of mostly Gentile missionaries. And what's interesting, there's a quote Yaakov Ariel makes. It basically says it's because of the one-on-one -on -one relational connections that the missionaries developed with these Jewish people that they became believers. Now, between 1920 and 1970, between 1920 and 1970, we see some interesting developments. First of all, uh, two kinds of Jewish believers developed at this time, two different kinds of philosophical understandings. Remember, 
You're an Eastern European Jew. You live in a shtetl because everybody's an immigrant almost. You're living in a shtetl all these years. It's us and them, the Christians. You know, take Ukraine. You're in Ukraine. You're in the Pale Settlement. Suddenly the priest over at either the Orthodox Christian Church or at the Ukrainian Catholic Church has a problem. He's having a bad night. He preaches a sermon where he talks about the Jews killed Christ. Everybody gets upset. They all get out of their pews. They go over to the shtetl next to the village because people didn't live together, basically. You're either in a Jewish village or a Christian village. And they went and had a pogrom. And so the exposure that most of these Jews, almost all these Jews had, was that believers in Jesus hate Jews. Jesus is bad for Jewish people. And that when a Jew believes, he renounces his Jewish identity and he moves into the Christian village. Fiddler on the roof. You all seen it? Sunrise, sunset. All right. Up until about the early 1900s, it was the expectation that if a Jew converted, he did so for political or economic reasons, because marriage often didn't happen either, <laughs> and then what it meant is that the Christians said, you've got to move out of your Jewish world and come into our Christian world. And the Jewish community said, if you're going to believe that, you have to get out of here. And there was no options to do otherwise. They come to America, they meet these, these people, talking to them about Jesus being the Messiah, because of circumstances and the work of God, they open up and believe, and suddenly they're trying to figure out, where do I fit? Where do I fit? This isn't like a shtetl environment. All the Germans moved together. When my family moved from Austria to Hungary to San Francisco, they moved with all the rest of the Germans, both the Christians and the Jews. They lived together. Where do you find the Russians? Often you find the Russians all together, Jews and Gentiles. They, buy, they come together because of common language. They come together because of common need. This isn't Europe anymore. It's America. So if you come to believe in Jesus, where do you go? How do you live? Some Jewish believers say we're Christians. We're Christians. They identified as Jews, but they joined churches and did little to no Jewish life or tradition. And they did it as a concession. If I had time, and I don't. If I had time, I could go through in the literature and in the documents how these people felt that they had to give up their Jewish identity. It was expected of them by their missionary friends. And so they did. They lost all identity. But there were some people who called themselves Messianic Jews. They were the minority. This is Leopold Cohen. And a couple of people like him, but not too many. They identified as Jews and attended small Jewish congregations and did what they could to live Jewish life and tradition. Leopold Cohen, by the year 1900, had seen enough Jews come to believe in Jesus in Williamsburg that he opened up a synagogue. <laughs> and you couldn't get into the synagogue unless you were a Jew who believed in Jesus. He didn't want anybody who wasn't serious. I mean, it's fascinating. In Toronto, Canada... There was a Jewish community that developed. There's an old mission up there called the Toronto Christian Mission of the Jews or Hebrew Mission or something like this. And I remember reading a statistic in about 1910 or 1920 that there was a congregation of Yiddish-speaking Jews who believed in Jesus in Toronto. 100 of them. 
hundred of them, Yiddish-speaking Jews, believers in Jesus. So you see this development. Hebrew Christians, Hebrew Christianity is this understanding that, you know, it's really the law is done away with and where being Jewish doesn't matter anymore. It's really coming into an understanding, submitting to the Christian understanding of what it means to be a believer in Jesus. Messianic Jews saying, in essence, just a second, we just found out that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Why do we have to stop being Jewish? Most people were Hebrew Christians, and that continued all the way up until 1970. Most people operated in that way. Starting in about 1970, though, the switch began. There's a group, and this is point B. It's called the Hebrew Christian Alliance of America, later called MJAA, Messianic Jewish Alliance of America. The uh, Hebrew Christian Alliance uh, became, I believe, the second chapter of an international alliance. The first chapter begun in England in 1866. The Hebrew Christian Alliance and Prayer Union of Great Britain began in 1866. And what's very interesting is in England, by the way, as well as in, uh, as in I believe it was Hungary, as well as in Poland, as well as in a couple other places, you already had small synagogues of Jews who believe in Jesus, in Jesus. There's one I'll tell you about, a guy named Rabbi Lichtenstein. Rabbi Lichtenstein. People don't talk about it that much because people wonder, you know, is it real? But Rabbi Lichtenstein, some, one of his students got a New Testament from some missionary, and this is, I believe, in Hungary. And, and Rabbi Lichtenstein took it away from the kid, threw it in his office, went into his library. Can I imagine a rabbi's library? So a couple of years later, the rabbi was looking for a book, found the New Testament, and began to read it. The rabbi became a believer. Now the rabbi said, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And he began to teach it in his synagogue. And his synagogue liked what they heard. Not everybody became a believer, but there was what developed here was a synagogue of Jews who believed in Jesus within the Jewish community. Now, as the missionaries liked to do, they wanted him to go and get immersed, and he refused because he said, why do I need to get immersed? You know, Because he understood it in terms of the conversion rights and the tension between Jews and Christians. But Rabbi Lichtenstein continued in the Jewish community as a rabbi until his death, as a believer in Jesus. There are other examples of that. So Europe began this whole thing. The first, the Hebrew Christian Alliance in America began in 1903 in Maryland. And they emphasized the eschatological role of Jewish believers before the church assign a testimony to the believing community, to the Gentile church, as well as a communal testimony to the Jewish community, a communal testimony of God's faithfulness to Israel. Now, uh, also what they believed is that they needed to combat a total assimilation of Jews who believed in Jesus. The one thing they, they came to understand is by the, by the early 1900s is any Jew who did believe in Jesus stopped being a Jew. And they didn't want that for themselves. I believe all the co-signers were immigrant Jews. And they didn't want to have to assimilate. They wanted some mechanism that would bring them together and allow them to continue to identify as Jewish people uh, communally. Now, they, they weren't wearing yarmulkes and talisim, I'll tell you that. Uh, that's something that they, they didn't do. But they at least had this mentality that they wanted to be together. And the uh, Messianic Jewish Alliance, or the, though actually the Hebrew Christian Alliance, continued as a loose affiliation of both congregational leaders 
and denominational missionaries. And it's amazing. I've seen pictures, old pictures from the 40s, 30s and 40s of some of these guys. And to see in the pictures leaders of indigenous Messianic Jewish congregations here in the United States that developed. Everybody thinks that all this congregational stuff started in the last 25, 30 years. That's absolutely false. All right, there's been a remnant, continues to be a remnant. Uh, the problem is, is that people assimilate very easily. The problem in the Jewish community among believers in Jesus is we basically say, what do we need to be Jewish for anymore? We believe in Jesus. And so between intermarriage and, you know, not keeping anything for whatever reason, identity is quickly lost. Now, in the two minutes that I have left, I want to just mention this. Uh, about the missions, because uh, the missions continue to play a critical role, though, overall, all the way up until 1970. The most important mission up until about 1975 was Chosen People Ministries, really by this time known as the American Board of Missions to the Jews. Leopold Cohen's mission, William, uh, the Williamsburg mission, later became the American Board of Missions to the Jews. Leopold Cohen's son, Joseph Hoffman Cohen, took over the ministry. Joseph Hoffman was a businessman, and he built this massive mission. They had mission work all over the United States, all over the world. They had missionaries in Warsaw, Poland. They had missionaries who died in the Holocaust in Eastern Europe. Uh, I, I met one of their, their old missionaries, a guy named Al Rungi. Al Rungi was baptized by Leopold Cohen. <laughs> Man, I mean, think about that. Meeting an old guy who still had his faculties about him who was immersed by Leopold Cohen. And he would talk about this old rabbi who was a believer in Jesus. And, uh, and he talked about that world that none of us here, I think, can really, maybe a few of you older people can maybe understand, but it's a different world. And now, according to what he told me, Leopold Cohen immersed a thousand Jews who came to believe in Jesus until his death in about 1935. Al Rungi himself was a missionary with Chosen People Ministries. He talks about, about uh, congregating, they couldn't call them congregations, but the even Chosen People in the 1950s had gatherings of Jewish believers in Jesus in Manhattan, in Manhattan numbering 100 people. I was in Manhattan a couple of months ago. There were, there were not 10 Jews who believed in Jesus in the two different congregations I attended in Manhattan combined. Ten. Now, there are more than that. There are more than that. But they're not in Messianic Jewish congregations. Al Rungi spoke of this congregation, and they asked the mission, can we make it into a congregation? And in the 1950s, the mission said, absolutely not. We don't do Messianic congregations. The Chicago Hebrew Mission today is known as Life of Messiah. Life of Messiah was once the largest Jewish mission until the 1950s, and then chosen people overtook them. And their mission consisted almost entirely of Gentiles. Gentiles who believed in Jewish people coming to believe in Jesus. And that was fantastic. But they did a lot, unfortunately, to discourage Jewish identity among Jews who believed in Jesus. Today that mission is around, and that mission, I, I know the uh, West Tabor, who's a leader, he's a friend of mine, and we have a good dialogue. I don't think even to this day he understands us, but that's okay. <laughs> okay, We can agree to disagree. But that mission is still around after over 100 years. There's a lot of other organizations that have gone the way of the dodo bird, have become extinct. The Presbyterians used to do tremendous work in Chicago. You've all heard of Adada Tikva, which is a Messianic Jewish congregation there in the area. That congregation was founded in 1934. 
as a result of children's ministry and youth ministry. There's a book called Esther, which you can go, well, I don't know if I want to check it out of my library because it's out of print, but uh, Esther is the story of, of the Bronsteins, David Bronstein and his wife Esther, who were involved in this work along with the brother-in-law, uh, Peltz, I can't remember his first name, but they built this ministry. And, and hundreds of Jewish people came to believe in Jesus. They had camp programs, all kinds of neat stuff. A tremendous, tremendous work. And the Presbyterians uh, today have nothing to do with Jewish evangelism uh, and very little to do often with the gospel, unfortunately. So between the beginning all the way up to 1970, what are the results? One, an identifiable community of Jewish believers in Jesus began to develop in various forms. Before early 1900s, they say about 4,000. By the end of, uh, by the time you get to about the 1970s, uh, the estimates, good estimates, are between 12 and 25,000 Jews who believed in Jesus in America by the time you get to the 70s. There are identifiable communities of Jewish believers in Jesus. They exist, like Leopold Cohen's work, of course the Toronto group we were talking about, and other little groups like the Bronsteins here in Chicago, which numbered around 70. But uh, very few were truly indigenous because they really did rely on money from the churches to, to support them. Um, most believers were still in and going to Jewish people who did become believers more often than not went into churches. There was no, the church, the greater body of Messiah, wonderful believers, still could not put it together that a Jew who believed in Jesus was still Jewish and it was okay for them to stay Jewish. That's the problem. When I became a believer at 15 and a half, Pastor Graves, who's a wonderful man, may his name be for a blessing, his memory be for a blessing, could not wrap it around his mind that I could still be Jewish and believe in Jesus. This was in 1981. Recently, uh, uh, John MacArthur spoke at Moody and gave a very negative portrayal of the Jewish people. I think that for some of these individuals, they still struggle with, with what it means for us as Jews to be Jews and believe in Jesus. Down to this time. The one thing that is key, and this I want to mention though, the, the one key that's, that's, that's mentioned several times in, the, in this literature that I read is, is the relational aspect of outreach. People became believers because people reached out. People became believers. Jewish people, religious people. There's testimonies of all kinds of Orthodox Jewish people. Rabbis becoming believers in Yeshua. Certainly the work of God, but God uses people most often, and they cite time after time that it's people talking to people. People willing to relate to people. People willing to be, you know, just to have a friendship with somebody who doesn't believe in Yeshua. And that, I think, is the lesson we have to walk out today with. Are we truly relating to people? We are what Leopold Cohen probably wished he could have had. An independent community of Jewish people that believe in Jesus. Just living Jewish life. But he would tell us to go out and to relate more, to more people. 
Go out and talk to people. When's the last time you talked with anyone about your faith in Yeshua? When's the last time you invited anybody to come into the synagogue just to, to join us for a Shabbat dinner? Shabbat dinner's coming up. Who can you just touch through an invitation that could ultimately lead them to becoming a follower of the Messiah? It is critically important that we reach out to people and we have an authentic relationship with people, and then as part of that, we bring them within community. One of the things that is also very interesting is that in every one of these groups, and this is even among the missionaries, they relied on some form of communal witness. There was always other Jewish believers, even if they were high, became highly assimilated, other Jewish believers that people could meet. All right? So think of how you can reach out, how you can invite people in, how you can relationally connect, how you can help people. That's what our responsibility is. That's what God wants us to do. And that's what's necessary if we truly want to see our people come to believe in Yeshua and our own community strengthened with the hope of who Messiah is. I do list there a recommended reading list. And uh, I want to recommend two books, if you haven't read them. This one is theologically very weighty. Uh, but it's very good. Uh, Introduction to Messianic Judaism just came out by uh, David Rudolph, who's one of our UMJC theologians, and a fellow named uh, Joel Willits, who teaches at North Park, uh, who's not Jewish at all. He's a Christian guy, but an excellent book. I encourage you to read it. Uh, the other is by David Stern, Messianic Judaism. Uh, Messianic Judaism is a great overview book about the Messianic Jewish community and ideas, and I encourage you to read it. If you've, if you've not read anything like that, grab it and read it uh, and uh, educate yourself. Uh, and we'll continue next week uh, focusing on the, the modern Messianic Jewish movement starting in 1970, which was, most of us can relate to in one way or another. But nothing happens out of nothing. It's all built on top of what came before. And that's what we have to keep in mind. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for the uh, truth of your word and the challenge of it. And even though I haven't opened the word I know that your command to us is to go and make disciples. Oh, I know we can't make disciples if we're not talking to anybody. God, I pray that you would burden us to open our mouths and to intentionally share with people all the time. God, help each one of us even now to be thinking of a person or two who we love who we're not talking to. I pray, God, that some of us, that each of us, would take advantage of the Shabbat dinner this coming Friday night and that we would invite people to come. God, please use us. Build your witness within this Jewish community. Save our people. Save our family members that they might come to understand the truth of who Yeshua is before it's too late. We pray all this in Yeshua's name.